Welcome to another podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. You can find out more about CGI Burlington on our website at cgiburlington.org. I missed it, but when President Barack Hussein Obama was inaugurated into office, Pastor Rick Warren gave the inaugural prayer, and he prayed in the name of Jesus and Isa. It just went over my head at the time, but now it's quite clear that what Rick Warren was doing was building a bridge between Christianity and Islam. In 2009, oh sorry, 2011, he led a movement called Chrislam. And there's an article here, thank you. There's an article here written by Jeffrey Greider entitled American Churches to Embrace Chrislam on June 26, 2011. It says Faith Shared asks houses of worship across the country to organize events involving clergy reading from each other's sacred texts. The concept of Chris Lamb, now embraced by such preachers as Rick Warren and Robert Schuller, appears to have emerged from a program on the meaning of Love Your Neighbor at Grace Fellowship Church in Atlanta, Georgia says, in 2001, like most Americans, we were pretty awakened to the true Islamic presence in the world and in the United States, says John Stallsmith, the outreach minister at Grace Fellowship. Jesus says we should love our neighbors. We can't do that without having a relationship with them. I, I thought Chrislam was just a cute term. What I'm coming to see is that it's a real movement. And there's a real effort to marry Christianity and Islam. And I would say it's actually a necessary effort. That as Islam gains momentum in the world and in the Western world, and as there's more conflict between Islamic and Western civilization, we need a solution. And these men see that Chrislam is a solution. And usually when you have this kind of conflict, it follows a pattern that we say there's a thesis, then there's an antithesis, and then there's synthesis. So the thesis is Christianity. The antithesis of Christianity is Islam. And that creates all kinds of conflict, turmoil, murder, death, chaos. And so the answer then is a synthesis, Chrislam. We need to be careful, brethren, because if the thesis is Christ, then the antithesis is antichrist, and there is no synthesis. What communion has Christ with Belial? goes on in the article, Stallsmith maintains that that harmonious relationship between Muslims and Christians can be achieved by the fact 
that Jesus is mentioned 25 times in the Quran. So because Jesus is mentioned 25 times in the Quran, we can have unity and harmonious relationships. The issue, brethren, with the mention of Jesus, not Jesus, Isa, in the Quran, is Jesus is not Isa. Any Arab who speaks Arabic will tell you that Jesus in Arabic is Yasu or Yasua. Isa is somebody else. The Isa in the Quran, very clearly it states he is not the son of God. So if we're going to accept Isa, we're accepting that Jesus is not the son of God. It goes on to say he was never crucified. There was a substitute. Someone else was crucified. Jesus himself denies his divinity. He's not God. And, according to the Hadith, he's coming back to get married, to raise a family, to declare allegiance to the Mahdi, and to put Christians to death who will not convert to Islam. This is a different entity. This is not the Jesus that we know. We heard from the youth study that not everyone makes it. That some people care more about the cares of this life, about the comfort, and we heard that in the sermonette as well, about the comfort of this life. That when the persecution comes, they abdicate. They turn aside. And they try to hold on to the benefits of this life. We are going to have a choice to make. This Chrislam is the answer. There is no other solution to the conflict between Islam and Christianity except that Christians back away from worshiping Jesus Christ and accept that he's just a prophet and that Islam is correct in saying he's not to be deified. There is no other solution unless we see beyond this world. And the real solution is to hold on to Jesus Christ, to worship Jesus Christ, to be committed to Jesus Christ, and so what I want to do for the sermon today, brethren, is for the first part of the sermon, I want to establish that Jesus Christ is God Almighty. He is God. Jesus Christ is God. And we are to worship him. And then I want to look at some passages that show his character so that when we say we are going to commit to the worship of Christ, it's not like a duty. Like, yeah, I've got to, I made this commitment, I've got to fulfill it. It's a pleasure and an honor. And we do it with gratitude. That, that we will never be taken away from Christ because we just love him so much. Let's look at his character. And, and then, you know, let's talk. I think this, this is a controversial issue. Not everybody accepts it. And that's okay. It's not for everybody. But this is the issue of our time. This is the issue of our time. This is the issue of our time. Is Jesus Christ God? 
And those who can stand on that truth are marching into the kingdom. And those who can't, oh well. Let's begin, brethren, in Matthew 16. Matthew 16 is the establishment of the church. Here in Matthew 16, we see Christ's intent to establish the church. And let's review this together as the basis for our argument that Jesus Christ is God. Beginning in verse 13, the scripture says, When Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples a really critical question. So they've been with him. He's been teaching them. They have a relationship with him. And he wants to know something of them. He asked his disciples, saying, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And over 100 times in the Gospels, Jesus Christ refers to himself as the Son of Man. Because he's a man, or he was a man. And he's saying, I am the Son of Man, over 100 times. That, that is his favorite way to refer to himself, the Son of Man. The scripture in Philippians says he made himself of no reputation, that he came down from heaven, and when he came to earth, he made himself of no reputation. So he refers to himself as the Son of Man. Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? Verse 14. And they said, there's confusion. They're talking about you, and there's confusion. Some say that you are John the Baptist, some Elijah, Others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. So they're searching the scriptures, and they're trying to figure out, he's somebody. He's doing a great work. He's a phenomenal teacher. Where where is he spoken of in the scriptures? So they're searching, and, you know, maybe he's John the Baptist. He could be Elijah, because Elijah's supposed to come back. Maybe he's Jeremiah, maybe one of the other prophets. And then he said to them, but whom do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, You are Christus. You are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. The Son of Man is man. The Son of God is God. And Simon Peter told him, I've been with you. I know who you are. You are the Son of the living God. Jesus answered and said, Whoa, don't go too far. I'm just the Son of Man. Jesus answered and said, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. You you are blessed because you understand. Flesh and blood has not revealed the Son to you, but my Father which is in heaven. This is privileged knowledge. You, You can't just come to this. Everyone else is confused because they're just dealing with the flesh and blood mind. But Simon had access to the Father who revealed this to him, that he is the Son of God. And I say unto you, you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. In the Greek, you are Petros, and upon this Petra I will build my rock, build, this, build my church. 
So in the Greek language, uh, tangible items tend to be masculine, and intangible concepts tend to be feminine. So what he's saying is kind of a play on words. He's named him Peter or stone or rock. But he's saying that this insight, this understanding that he reveals in verse 16, that Christ is the son of the living God, upon that truth, he will build the church. That that is the foundation of the church, that Christ is the son of God. And because of that truth, those of us who understand this truth, that we understand that Jesus is God, the gates of hell shall never prevail against the church. It is impossible. If we know that Christ is the Son of God, and we are committed to him as the Son of God, we can never fail. The church of God can never fail. 1 Corinthians 3.11 says, There is no other foundation that man can lay that is laid except Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the foundation. And this knowledge that he's the son of the living God is the foundation of the church. Look at John 11. There is going to be tremendous pressure on Christians to deny Christ as God. And we must be committed. The, 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 the gates of hell can never prevail against the church that understands that the Son of Man is the Son of God. The human, Jesus Christ, is the Son of God. John 11, verse 23. Jesus said unto her, the speaking of um, Lazarus, Your brother, who had died, your brother shall rise again. Martha says to him, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. So they understood the doctrine. They understood the resurrection. They lost Lazarus. They're very sad about that, grieving. But they know he will rise again at the last day. Jesus said unto her, I am the resurrection. So it's not that we're just looking to the last day, and I know that God is going to raise him up at the last day. Jesus is saying, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believes in me... Though he were dead, yet shall he live. That's why the gates of hell can never prevail against the church. Because he that believes in Christ, though we die, yet we shall live. The gates of hell cannot prevail against us. And whosoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Look now at Matthew 16. Oh, sorry. Yes, sorry. I I apologize. We're going to go back to Matthew 16, where we were. So I just wanted to establish there that Christ is the resurrection. and, And it's because we believe in him that we shall live and never die. And that's why the gates of hell will not prevail against us. Verse 19 of Matthew 16. And I will give unto you, Peter, the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatsoever you shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatsoever you shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then charged he his disciples that they should tell no man that he was Jesus, the Christ. From that time forth began Jesus to show unto his disciples how that he must go into Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders 
and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. Notice, brethren, in the very foundation of the church is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. There's no such thing as a church that doesn't believe that Jesus is the son of the living God and doesn't believe that he's going to be crucified or that he was crucified, buried three days and three nights and resurrected. So any concept of Jesus or any church that does not accept Jesus as the son of the living God who died, was crucified, was buried for three days and three nights and resurrected is a false church. We, we cannot leave this fundamental, foundational truth of the church. Verse 22, notice this, verse 22. So this is foundational. Christ is saying, this is, the, this is what I have to do. I have to go to Jerusalem. I have to suffer. I have to be crucified. And then I'll be raised again. Verse 22, Peter took him and began to rebuke him. What are you talking about? You're the son of the living God. This is not going to happen to you. Be saying, be it far from you, Lord, this shall not be unto you. But he turned and said to Peter, get you behind me, Satan. For you are an offense unto me. Why? Because you savor not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. God has a purpose, a mighty purpose in Christ. And Peter, wanting to deny the crucifixion of Christ, Christ says that's of the devil. That what is of God is the crucifixion of Christ. This comes from God. And again, this is in the foundation of the church. There is no way that Christ will not be crucified. Then said Jesus unto his disciples, so it's not just that Christ is going to be crucified now. He goes on. Then said Jesus unto his disciples, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So the things of God are not self-centered. The people of God are not selfish. God has this master purpose, which Jesus Christ is committed to, was and is committed to. And those of us who are Christians and follow Christ, we're committed to the master purpose as well. And we're not in this to save our skin. We're not in this for mammon. We're not in this for the pleasures of this world. We get it. We're in this for the grand vision, the master plan. For whosoever shall save his life will lose it, and whoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. The gates of hell will never prevail against us. Even if we lose our life, we're back. The church is forever. For what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man shall come, this is it, brethren, the Son of Man shall come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he shall reward every man according to his works. So we just have to be faithful to the end. He that endures to the end shall be saved. Now, there is an argument. Look at Isaiah 44. There is an argument that there is only one God. And because there's only one God, Jesus cannot be God. That Jesus can be a type of the Son of God, but that doesn't make him God. And look at Isaiah 44. In verse 6. Thus says the Lord, 
the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I am the first, and I am the last, and beside me there is no God. So there's only one God. He says, I'm the first, I'm the last, beside me there's no other God. Okay? Hold that thought, and come with me to Revelation. Revelation 1. We're going to just move around the Bible a little bit as we establish this. Revelation 1 and verse 11, saying, Christ, I am Alpha and Omega. Jesus Christ says, I am the first and the last. Christ knows the scriptures. Christ knows Isaiah. He knows what Isaiah wrote. And Isaiah wrote that God is the first and the last. And Jesus says, I am the first and the last. Look now, let's go back to Isaiah. And chapter 7 this time. The prophet Isaiah chapter 7. And notice verse 14. Isaiah 7 verse 14. Please pay very careful attention to this scripture. Isaiah 7 verse 14. You know, the Quran will acknowledge that the birth of Christ was miraculous, that it was a virgin birth. Well, it comes from this scripture, Isaiah 7, verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive, and she will bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. God with us. There's going to be a virgin, and miraculously, she's going to conceive. And out of that miracle, a child will be born, and the name of the child, God with us. Look now at chapter 9 of the same prophet, Isaiah 9. So the virgin will conceive. She'll bear a child. The child's name will be God with us. Isaiah 9, verse 6. Now the child is born. For unto us, Israel, a child is born. Unto us, Israel, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God. Unto us, a child will be born. A human being will be born. And we will call him the mighty God. The everlasting father. So Christ will become a father. He'll marry. He'll have offspring. The prince of peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. And upon the throne of the Jew, David... And upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform it. So there will be a Jew that will be born, that will be called the mighty God. And he will sit on the throne of David. And God is so excited that his zeal will perform this. I mean, I believe this is indisputable. That he will be called the mighty God. 
Look now at Philippians. I'm not done. I'm just warming up. Philippians. A very familiar scripture, verse 5. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. What kind of mind did, did Christ have? Who, being in the form of God... In other words, he was God. He thought it not robbery to hold that position. So even though he was God, it's not a position that he held on to or thought that he had to hold on to. He was willing to give it up. This is the kind of mind that he had. He is the exalted. We sang that. He is exalted. He's above everyone. And yet he had a mind that he was willing to give that up. Instead, he made himself of no reputation. And we saw that he calls himself, all the time he was on earth, he called himself the son of man over a hundred times. Made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant. So it didn't even come as a king. He came as a lowly servant and was made in the likeness of men. Even though he was God, he was made in the likeness of humans. And being found in fashion as a human, he humbled himself. And became obedient unto death. So we saw that when when he was establishing the church. And and Peter tried to dissuade him from his crucifixion. He said, get behind me, Satan. That's the very reason why I came to earth. To be crucified. Even the death of the cross. Verse 9. Therefore God has highly exalted him. And given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. Jesus Christ, uh, God the Father, wants everyone to worship Jesus Christ. Everybody will bend the knee and worship Jesus Christ. Of things in heaven, so even the, the beasts and the angels in heaven, and things in earth, and things under the earth. And every tongue should confess That Jesus Christ is Lord. And when we confess that Jesus is Lord, does that take something away from the Father? Are we we discrediting the Father by worshiping Jesus? He says no. He says that when we confess that Jesus is Lord, that's to the glory of God the Father. By worshiping Jesus, we glorify the Father. Look now at 1 Timothy 3. First Timothy 3 and verse 16. And without controversy, there's no argument here. There's, there's nothing to discuss. Without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. And what is this mystery? That God was manifest in the flesh. God was manifest in the flesh. This, this is the great mystery. You know, the pagan religions, God is so other, he's so beyond, that he can have nothing to do with flesh, nothing to do with humankind. This truth, this biblical truth, 
is a great mystery that people don't understand. But it's without argument. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, and then received up into glory. The scripture is not pulling any punches. God was made manifest in the flesh. Look now at John 20. This is now after his resurrection. Verse 26, John 20. And, and, and John is just really into the divinity of Christ. It's a very different gospel than, than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. He's dealing with really the big picture. But here he's showing in verse 26. And after eight days again, his disciples were within. And Thomas was with them this time. Then came Jesus, the doors being shut. So he didn't come through an open door. He came through the walls. And he stood in the middle and said, peace be unto you. Then said he to Thomas, reach here your finger and behold my hands and reach here your hand and thrust it into my side and do not be faithless, but believing. And Thomas answered and said unto him, my Lord and my God, my Lord and my God. Now, if there was ever a time to correct somebody of blasphemy, this would be it. Jesus accepted that. My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you've seen me, you've believed that I'm your Lord and your God. Blessed are they that have not seen and yet believe that I'm their Lord and their God. And many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. The Son of Man is man. The Son of God is God. And that believing, you might have life through his name. And again, that's the foundation of the church. And that's why the gates of hell can never prevail against the church. Because we believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And he is the resurrection. And even if we die, the gates of hell cannot prevail against us because he'll pull us out of the grave. That's the foundation of the church. Let's go back to John 8. John 8. And verse 22, then said the Jews, will he kill himself? Because he says, where I go, you cannot come. And he said to them, you are from beneath, I am from above. We saw that in Philippians. He, he was God. He didn't think that he had to hold on to that. He was willing to give that up and to become a man. And now he's telling them, you're from beneath, I'm from above. You're of this world, I am not of this world. So Jesus Christ was on earth as a human being. And he's telling the Jews that he's interacting with, I'm not of this world. I come from heaven. I said therefore unto you that you shall die in your sins. For if you believe not, and, and maybe you're 
translation says that I, not that I am he, and hopefully the he is in italics because it's provided by the English. It's not in the original text. If you know, if, for if you believe not that I am, I am that I am, I am God. If you do not believe that I am, you shall die in your sins. Jesus is God. He is the resurrection. And if you don't believe that, you're not part of the church, and the gates of hell will prevail against you. But if you believe this, the gates of hell will never prevail against us. They said unto him, then said they unto him, Who are you? And Jesus said unto them, Even the same that I said to you from the beginning. In other words, I've already told you who I am. You don't believe it, but I've told you. Drop down to verse 58. Jesus said unto them, truly, truly. Jesus never lies. This is truth. Verily, verily, I say unto you, before Abraham was, I am. I am. I know you're looking at me and I look like a human being, like any other human being. But I'm telling you, before Abraham was, I am. Wow. John 10. John 10. Are we saying that there are two gods? John 10, verse 30. I and my Father are one. There's one God. I and my Father are one. You know... I am, my, my wife and I are one. The two become one flesh. In God's eyes, we're one. And Christ is saying, I know you're looking at me, and I'm telling you, I am. I am God. I and my Father are one. Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. They wanted to kill him. Jesus answered them and said, Many good works have I showed you unto, unto you from my Father. For which of those works do you stone me? The Jews answered him, saying, For a good work we stone you not, but for blasphemy. Because that you, being a man, make yourself God. This was, there was no confusion here. He knows the scriptures. They know the scriptures. And he's telling them, I am. And they're going to kill him for this. This is blasphemy. You're making yourself God. When you're a man. Look at chapter 17 of John. Chapter 17, verse 4. I have glorified you, Father, on the earth. So he's on the earth. I've glorified you, Father. I've finished the work which you gave me to do. So he came here to do a job. He's done it. And now, O Father, I've glorified you. Now, Father, glorify me with your own self, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Before Abraham was, I am. I am. And now he's praying to God. He's talking to God. And he's saying, God, I'm done. Now I'm going to be crucified. 
And now what I want is for you to restore the glory that I had with you before I came to earth. That same glory that's spoken of in Philippians. That glory that he didn't think he had to hold on to. He was willing to give it up. To come to earth. To save mankind. And now that the job is done, he's led a sinless life. And now he's going to be crucified. Now man has access to God. And he's praying to the Father and saying, restore to me the glory that I had with you. Because you and I are one. Look at John 1. We're very familiar with this, but let's, after looking at these scriptures, let's now go back to John 1. And John is so emphatic, he really wants us to get this. And, and in fact, in the epistles, he, he really comes out railing against anyone that denies that God has come in the flesh. That's Antichrist. John 1, verse 1. So he says, glorify me with the glory that I had with you before the world was. John 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So, so restore to me this glory in the beginning. Before anything was, I was with you, and I was God. Now I'm a man. People want to stone me. I, I, I'm, dis, I'm disregarded, but I've led a sinless life, and I've done the work that you've asked me to do. And now I'm going to be crucified. Now restore me to this position. The same was in the beginning. Before Abraham was, I am. The same was in the beginning with God. So the word was God, and he was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, by Christ. And without him was not anything created that was created. In him was life and the life was the light of men. Verse 14, John really wants us to understand this. This word that was God, verse 14, the word was made flesh, and he actually dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John wants us to get this. Like He, he can't believe it. And he's trying to convey to us, this really happened. God really was in the flesh. Let's go to Matthew 14. Matthew 14 and verse 24. This is the incident of Peter walking on water. But the ship was now in the midst of the sea, tossed with waves, for the wind was strong. The wind was contrary. And in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went unto them, walking on the sea. So so there's a a bit of a storm here, and Jesus is walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, it is a spirit. And they cried out for fear. But but notice straight away, immediately, Jesus spoke to them and said, be of good cheer. It is I. Do not be afraid. So God never wants his people to be afraid. So don't be afraid. Immediately, he reassures them, it's me. 
And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it be you, bid me come unto you on the water. So Peter understood. Remember he asked, you know, who do men say I am? Who do you say I am? You're the son of the living God. So Peter says, well, if it's you, enable me to walk on the water. And he said, come. And when Peter was come down out of the ship, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. But of course, there's a storm. So he took his eyes off Jesus, looked at the storm. But when he saw the wind boisterous, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried, saying, Lord, save me. And immediately, Jesus stretched out his hand. You see the love that Christ has for his disciples, his creation. And he caught him and said unto him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they were come into the ship, the wind ceased. Then they that were in the ship came and worshipped him. They worshipped him. Who do men say I am? And who do you say I am? You're the son of the living God. Wow. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. My father revealed this to you. Lord, if it's you, bid me come. And he was able to walk. He knew that if you're God, you'll, you'll allow me to walk on the water. And now they come in the ship and they worship God. Saying, of a truth, you are the son of God. The son of man is man. The son of God is God. Let's now just conclude this section, brethren, in Revelation chapter 5. Just establishing the divinity of Christ. Jesus Christ is God. And when we believe that with all of our heart, we can never die. The gates of hell cannot prevail against us. Revelation 5. Let's begin in verse 11. And I beheld, and I heard the voice of many angels round about the throne. And the beasts and the elders. And the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000. And thousands of thousands. Saying with a loud voice. Worthy is the lamb. That was slain. So remember he says. uh, Glorify me. The work is done. Glorify me with the glory that I had with you. Before the world was. Now he sees the throne. And they're saying with a loud voice. Thousands and ten thousands. And just maybe millions of them. Worthy is the Lamb, with a loud voice, you can just imagine it, that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth, just as I said in Philippians, that his name will be above every name, and such as are in the sea, And all that are in them heard I saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sits upon the throne and unto the Lamb forever and ever. So the same worship that is given to the Father, that same worship is extended to Jesus Christ. And there's no offense here. By worshiping Christ, we honor the Father and we glorify the Father. But we must only worship God. And here we worship the Lamb forever and ever and ever and ever. And the four beasts said, Amen. And the four and twenty elders fell down and worshipped him 
that lives forever and ever. The lamb that was slain lives forever and ever. And now they're worshiping him that lives forever and ever. I rest my case. Jesus Christ is God. I will not let any human being take that away from me. I believe in the resurrection. And I hope, brethren, that you will be committed to this. Because we are facing an onslaught. Satan hates this truth. And he's going to pull it out of Christians. Even if he has to torture us to get it out of us. Christ says, don't be afraid of those who all they can do is kill the body. And after they've done that, that's it. They've got got nothing else. He's like, is that all you've got? Because Christ has the resurrection. Jesus Christ has the resurrection. Let's look now, brethren, at a couple of passages that just show how wonderful Jesus Christ is. That that when we say we are committed to the worship of Christ, it's not some sort of obligation and duty in that sense. It's a joy. It's a joy. This is such a unique person who is worthy of honor and glory and our praise. And this way of life, brethren, that we're called to, there's nothing like it. There's nothing like it. You know, all the false religions, all of them, they all have Nimrod in common. And their God is a powerful hunter. He's, he's a strong man. And he's other. He's untouchable and inaccessible. Our God comes as a lamb to be slain. Which we remember every year at Passover. And we're now 104 days from Passover. And we rehearse what he did for us. I mean, you can't make this up. I'm going to invent a religion. And I know my God will be humiliated. Men, mere mortals, will overpower and crucify my God. And, and come and follow me. Because if you follow me, the same thing could happen to you. And yet, this truth... It can't be quashed. No matter how hard the devil works, this truth cannot be quashed. This God that we serve is completely accessible. Are you a sinner? So am I. Come, let's go to Jesus. Every other God, you've got to go through all kinds of rituals and ablutions before you can approach him. This is so unique, brethren, what we are a part of. The psalmist David said, the Lord is great and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the nations are idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Let's go back to John 10. John 10. John 10, verse 9. I am the door. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved. And shall go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes not but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. I am come that they might have life. And that they may have it more abundantly. 
So you see these other religions, they just want to take from you. You know, they'll send you into battle. And you go and kill yourself. And you take your children and put them in the battle as well and kill them as well. And I'll just sit back and collect the booty. What kind of religion is that? Our God leads the battle. And he dies for us. He shows us the way. So that he can give us eternal life. I am the good shepherd. What does the good shepherd do? The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. This is our high priest. Our high priest goes to the father with blood so that we can be forgiven. Whose blood? His own blood. So he is the high priest and he's the victim. He sheds his own blood and he takes that blood to the father and says, forgive them. This is, this is the God we serve, brethren. This is the God we serve. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. But he that's a hireling and not the shepherd, whose own the sheep are not, so he doesn't, the sheep don't belong to, to him, he sees the wolf coming and he leaves the sheep. Uh-oh, danger. See you later. Hope it works out for you. The good shepherd gives his life. The, wolf, the, the, the thief... The hireling sees the wolf coming. He leaves the sheep and flees. He looks after himself. And the wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. The hireling flees. Why does the hireling flee? Because he's a hireling. He's an employee. He's hired. He's hired. He's in this for his own benefit. I'll do this job if you pay me. And then like, hey, you're not paying me enough for that. He does not care for the sheep. And again, this is the difference, brethren. Jesus Christ cares for us. He says that we must cast all of our cares upon him. He cares for us. I am the good shepherd, and I know my sheep, and have known of mine. As the Father knows me, even so know I the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. So he lays it down. And other sheep I have which are not of this fold. So he's speaking to the Jews and he's saying, I also have Gentiles. Them also I must bring and they shall hear my voice and there shall be one fold and one shepherd. Therefore does my father love me because I lay down my life that I might take it again. No man takes it from me. So even though he came to be crucified, nobody took his life from him. He gave it. I, but I lay it down of myself. It's my, it's my choice. I have the power to lay it down, and I have the power to take it up again. This commandment have I received of my Father. Brethren, I'm telling you, no human being could make this up. This, this doesn't come out of the, the mind of men. If I'm going to create a God, it's going to be a powerful God. A mighty God that nobody can vanquish. Here this God says, I'm going to come to earth and I'm going to lay down my life to save the sheep. I'm greater than you, but I'm going to treat you as you're greater than me. John 13. As we approach Passover, these are good scriptures for us to review. To think about this person, Jesus Christ, his mind, gave up everything, came to earth, 
Verse 4. He rises from supper, and he laid aside his outer garments. And then he took a towel, and he wrapped himself with the towel. So his personal covering now. After that, he pours water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the very same towel wherewith he was girded. I mean, you just get a sense of the affection, of the commitment, of the care and concern that he has for his disciples. That he is their Lord, and he's washing their feet with such care. Then he comes to Simon Peter, and Peter says unto him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, What I do you know not now, but you shall know hereafter. Peter says to him, You shall never wash my feet. It's just preposterous. I know who you are. You are the Son of God. I I can't let you wash my feet. It's a different kind of God, brethren. Jesus answered him, If I wash you not... You have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, He that is washed need not save to wash his feet, but is clean every whit, and you are clean but not all. For he knew who should betray him. Therefore he said, You are not all clean. So this God, brethren, not only does he have this love and compassion for his disciples, But he knows that among his disciples is a betrayer. Someone who's going to cause him to be murdered. Verse 12. After he had washed their feet and taken his garments and was set down again, he said to them, Do you know what I've done to you? You call me Master and Lord, and you say, Well, because that's what I am. If I then, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. So this is the way of of Christianity, putting others before us, serving, loving others, esteeming others better than ourselves. Truly, truly, I say unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord, neither is he that is sent greater than he that sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Let's look, just go back to John 8, brethren, again, just to show this this loving character of Christ. And then we'll, yeah, John 8. This is the incident of the woman taken in adultery. And again, bear in mind, this is the Son of God. This is the Son of God in human form. Jesus went up to the Mount of Olives, verse 1, and early in the morning he came again into the temple And all the people came unto him, and he sat down, and he taught them. So he is teaching the the people. And the scribes and the Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery. And when they had set her in the middle, so again, uh, Deacon Jan was talking about Middle Eastern culture. Uh, In Middle Eastern culture, this type of shame, you don't live this down. This is beyond 
uh, reproach. This is uh, beyond uh, livable. It, 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 uh, they clearly wanted to embarrass her and disgrace her. So there's all these people around, and then they bring her in the middle and say she was caught in adultery. They say unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. So I think this says more about them than it says about her. You know, why, why were they watching? Why, why were they there? And where's the man? If she was in the very act, then she wasn't by herself. Where's the man? But clearly they just want to shame the woman. And now here's the, the kicker, verse 5. Now Moses, in the law, commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? So they're setting, so they want to embarrass her and disgrace her, but they want to trap him. Because they want to say here, you have no choice. She was in the very act. Therefore, if you're a faithful follower of Moses, you have to command that she be stoned to death. But you're in Rome, the Roman Empire, in Jerusalem, under the Roman Empire. If you command somebody to be put to death, and that's not authorized by the Roman Empire, you will be put to death. So what are you going to do now? And just, again, just the, the wisdom, the compassion, the, 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 the calmness that Christ has. Verse 6. This they said, tempting him. They want him to fall into this trap that they might have to accuse him. So they could go to either to the Roman uh, authorities and say he's authorized somebody to be killed, or they could uh, accuse him of not following Moses. But Jesus stooped down, and with his finger, he wrote on the ground. So he didn't say anything. He just started writing something. And this is the only record we have that Jesus wrote something. So he started to write as though he didn't hear them. So when they continued asking him, he lifted up himself and he said to them, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. So this is the solution. Yes, let's stone her. That, that is correct. She should be stoned. So whichever of you is without sin, you be the first one to throw the stone. And he again stooped down and wrote on the ground. And who knows what he wrote? March 5th. Sally Jones. And then maybe one of the elders is thinking, oh. April 22nd in Jerusalem at this location, maybe he's writing their sins down. And they're looking at that and thinking, wow. And they which heard it being convicted by their own conscience went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last. And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. So we see how he navigates this uh, corruption of these leaders with such wisdom and grace. And now the woman's left alone with him. And he said unto her, woman, where are those your accusers? Has no man condemned you? She said, no man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. 
So this is, you just see the graciousness of God. That this woman was caught in the very act. And he silenced her accusers. They were trying to embarrass her and ruin her reputation for life. He saved her reputation and saved her life. And basically told her, sin no more. You see in these other religions where, in fact, there's the, in the Hadith, a woman that was caught in the very act of adultery. And uh, she became pregnant by it. She was impregnated and she came to the prophet and said, I committed adultery and I'm pregnant. And he said, have the baby and then come back. So she went away for months. She had the baby and she came back and she was suckling the baby. And he said, finish nursing the baby and come back. She came back two years later with the toddler. He took the toddler from her, dug a pit, buried her in the pit up to her shoulders, so just like that, and had everybody stone her to death in front of the two-year-old. That's the religions of this world. Jesus Christ came to save. Jesus Christ wants to love us. He wants to bless us. He wants to help us. Let's conclude, brethren. Actually, look at, look at Luke uh, 23. Just again, to show this mind of Christ that, that Philippians, uh, the Apostle Paul tells us, we should have this mind. Luke 23, verse 26. And as they led him away, so he's now going to be crucified. And remember that he was praying earnestly that if there's any way for him to escape this fate, that God would grant it. And praying to the point where he was dripping drops of blood, uh, sweat of blood. That's how intense his prayers were. And then in verse 26, as they led him away, and they lay hold upon one Simon, a Cyrenian, Cyrenian, coming out of the country, and on him they laid the cross, that he might bear it after Jesus. And there followed him a great company of people. So he had lots of people that he had taught, so they're all now following him to his demise, and of women, which also bewailed and lamented him. So they were very sorry about what was about to happen to him. Where is his mind? So he was trying to avoid this fate if he could, and then he realized, no, I have to go through this. And now everybody's crying for him. He's about to be crucified. Verse 28. But Jesus, so they're bewailing and lamenting him. But Jesus, turning unto them, said, Daughters of Jerusalem, weep not for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. So he's concerned about them. And he's saying, you have no idea what's coming. When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, run for your life. And if you're pregnant, I'm sorry for you, because these people have no mercy. Weep for yourselves and for your children, for behold, the days are coming in the which they shall say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bear. So you're, you're blessed if you've never had children in these days. And the paps which never gave suck. Then shall they begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us. And to the hills, cover us. It's going to be such a terrible time. For if they do these things in a green tree, what shall be done in the dry? And so 
in other words, if the Son of God is present and they do this, what will they do when he's absent? And so Jerusalem, we know in the days ahead, is going to suffer immeasurably. And that's where Christ's mind was. That even though Jews are crucifying him, he's crying over Jerusalem. And he wants the best for Jerusalem. And he's committed to Jerusalem. We heard in the scripture reading that the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. The God of my rock, in him will I trust. He is my shield and the horn of my salvation, my high tower and my refuge, my savior. You save me from violence. Jesus is the rock. Let's conclude in Daniel 2. Jesus is the rock of our salvation. We believe in him. We trust him. We know that he is the son of God. And he's remarkable. We're committed to him. We love him because he loved us first. He's remarkable. He is a God of love. God is not hate. We saw that with the woman. He's not out to condemn and punish. He came to save, not to destroy. He's not a destroyer. But his patience does have an end. And from the beginning, mankind has been trying to uh, expunge God from his life. And we saw that with Nimrod and the, the civilization that he set up. And all of these civilizations and all of these religions are rooted in that unholy trinity of Nimrod, Samaramis, and Tammuz. And that spills out into every religion, every civilization. It's everywhere except in Israel, except in this biblical truth. And the the beast civilizations that are set up to try to destroy the people of God, the gates of hell will never prevail. And we see this rock of our salvation here in Daniel 2 and verse 40. Daniel 2. And the fourth kingdom, which is being set up right now, though the world is being reconfigured, everybody can feel it. The world is changing. And we have now this fourth kingdom shall be strong as iron. For as much as iron breaks in pieces and subdues all things, and as iron that breaks all these, shall it break in pieces and bruise. And in the days of these kings, so in this time when, when this final push of the Nimrod civilization and the Nimrod religion and, and trying to uh, get the world to worship Satan as one so that he can be like the Most High, in the time of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms and it shall stand forever. So finally, that that civilization engine that Nimrod put in place, finally it will be vanquished when Jesus Christ returns. For as much as you saw that a stone was cut out of the mountain without hands. Brethren, this is the rock of our salvation. So the church is founded upon a rock. And this is that rock that is coming to destroy this satanic civilization and this this antichrist world. That stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, 
and that it broke in pieces the iron, the brass, the clay, the silver, and the gold. It goes right back and just gets rid of all of this civilization. The great God has made known unto the king what shall come to pass hereafter. The dream is certain, and the interpretation thereof is sure. The dream that Nebuchadnezzar had is certain, and this interpretation is, is sure. So, brethren, the world is changing. We expect to see a lot more violence, a lot more. It's going to be wild. We're, we're heading into the Wild West. The scripture says it's going to be a time of lawlessness. We, we can walk around today because there's law and order. And, and the Western world has really been a civilization built upon rule of law. The scripture says we're heading into a time of lawlessness. It's going to be wild. And because of this lawlessness, because it's going to abound, the agape of many will run cold. We need to be among those brethren that understand that Jesus Christ is God. He is God. And let this mind be in us that was in him. That it's not about us. It's really about this. That this Nimrod oppression has been oppressing mankind for millennia. And we get to be a part of the solution. As long as we're faithful to the end. So whatever they come with, whether it's force and coercion or deception, we will never depart from the truth that the church is built upon. That Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He is God and he's worthy of our praise. This has been a podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. We hope you are blessed by it. To find out more about CGI Burlington, visit our website at cgiburlington.org.